uh, Mark chapter 7. And uh, that the song we've just had was a good, a good setup for this. We're kind of going here from one extreme to the other because last week, if you were here, we looked at the, the story of Jesus, Jesus feeding the 5,000, which has got to be one of the most familiar, the most well-known, preached on Sunday school lesson uh, you know, passage in the entire Bible. We all, we all know it back to front or at least have some familiarity with it. And then we come to this passage this morning about Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, while we've all heard a thousand Sunday school lessons on the feeding of the 5,000, I'm not sure I've ever heard a Sunday school lesson on the controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees over defiling purity laws. Uh, not, not a ready-made package for the five-year-olds, a little bit difficult for them to grasp. Maybe we'll give it a go. But this is kind of tricky stuff. Uh, it's a bit more obscure, but it's interesting in that it draws us right into Jesus' world. I mean, these were the people that he was coming across all the time. These were the people, the groups that he was interacting with. This was the stuff of first century Palestine. And we meet a couple of groups in this passage who we haven't talked much about before. There's a group called the Scribes. And these guys are basically the theologians of the day. So they know their Bibles, which were really the, the Old Testament for them, particularly the first five books. They were really big on those called the Torah or the Pentateuch. Um, they knew this back to front. They knew the law and they knew they were experts in applying it in life. And the second group um, is the really interesting one, the Pharisees. And these guys, they're pretty, they crop up all the time in the Gospels and they, there's a lot of stuff going on about them. They're not actually a very big group. There's only about 6,000 of them and a population of about half a million at the time. So not huge, but very influential. And the whole agenda of the Pharisees was, can be summed up in one word really, purity. This is what they were all about, purity. Defending the purity of Israel and ensuring the purity of the Jewish people before God. But that didn't mean for them just general moral purity or just being pure and innocent in, in some vague sense. Purity for the Pharisees had two very, very specific meanings. One was strict adherence to the 613 commands that Moses gave. And you can find those in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus. These particular precepts of the law had to be strictly observed um, as far as the Pharisees were concerned. And the second thing they were really big on with purity was ritual or ceremonial purity, which is um, really an extension of the law, but it's making sure that people never come in contact with the wrong type of food or the wrong type of people or, uh, the ro you know, don't touch a dead corpse and there were all these kinds of things. Don't come in contact with mold, various things that could contaminate or defile a person in a, in a, in a, in a ritual ceremonial sense. They made sure people stayed well away from that stuff. And if you ever did come into contact with it, there were these various regulations you had to go through in order to become pure again. Usually involved some kind of washing or some kind of offering. And so the Pharisees were the guardians of all this stuff to make sure everybody stays pure as much of the time as possible. And if you're not pure, then you've got to, you know, get out of this defiled state and become pure again. The problem for the Pharisees and the scribes is that it was hard by the first century to figure out exactly how some of these commandments were supposed to be applied. Because just like it's been a couple of thousand years since the time of Jesus to our day today, it had been about 1,300 years since Moses first gave these commands until the time of the Pharisees in the first century. So it wasn't just this little, uh, you know, a little while ago they'd received these commands. They were looking at a big time span and they weren't quite sure how to apply these things in new cultural settings either. 
They have the same challenge we do today of trying to figure out how a, a, a document and writings written a long, long time ago can be applied and made sense of in a, in a modern day context. And the Pharisees were trying to do this with the Torah. They were trying to do this with the commandments that they had, and they weren't quite sure how it all could be applied. The biggest problem they had in the first century is that Israel is an occupied country. You've got a government that's in charge, which is by definition unclean, impure, defiled. Rome is the great Babylon, the great unclean nation. And everywhere you go, in the marketplace, you see shrines of Caesar. You see shrines to these pagan gods. You're reminded constantly of that which is not Jewish, which is unclean. And people are defiled so easily that the Pharisees had to try and figure out how on earth do we maintain ritual purity in a context where we've basically become an unclean nation. Because Rome has come in and has such a presence that the purity of the Jewish nation is all but gone by this stage. So the Pharisees come up with a little scheme. They've got a little plan, and it's reflected in this ancient writing called the Perk Aboth. This is a, a book or, or a, an ancient writing which was written down after the time of the Pharisees, but it reflects exactly their philosophy. And the, the Pharisaic movement was very influential in this putting together of this writing. Now, let me read you the first paragraph of the Perk Aboth. Moses received the Torah, that's the law, the Jewish law, from Sinai, and gave it over to Joshua. Joshua gave it over to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets gave it over to the men of the great assembly. That's a, that's a line of people between the prophets and the rabbis. They, the men of the great assembly, would always say these three, these three things. Be cautious in judgment, establish many pupils, and make a safety fence around the Torah. That last sentence is absolutely critical to understand in order to get your head around the agenda of the Pharisees. Basically, how they operated was this. It's so difficult today to figure out exactly how to obey these commandments and to make sure we don't become unclean. Here's what we're going to do. Every time there's one commandment, in the law, take one command in Leviticus or Exodus or whatever, just to make sure that there is no possible way of disobeying that commandment, we're going to come up with another 10 commandments to wrap around it, just so you don't even get close to disobeying the one that really, really matters. You see, so they build a little scaffolding. They, this is what it is, to fence the Torah, to put a fence around the Torah, take one commandment, come up with a body of other commandments to keep people out. Now, I'll, tell you, I'll show you how this works. Take the example of the Sabbath, the one day in seven where Jews are commanded not to do any work. Now, it was so important to the Pharisees that nobody did anything that could even remotely be considered work that they would insist that if you were a tailor for a living, then in the afternoon before the Sabbath, you could not carry a needle on you. Just in case when the sun went down and the Sabbath begun, you were caught with a needle on you, which would be the tool of your trade, which would then constitute working. So you would be working on the Sabbath. Even if you weren't actually using that needle, you still got it on you. It's like a builder carrying a hammer. Sorry, you sprung. You're out. This is how seriously it works. I'm not making this up. There's rabbinic documents where this is very, very clear. Uh, you can't, if, you're, if, you're on, if it's the Sabbath day, you can go for a walk outside, but you can't walk more than 2,000 cubits, which is about a kilometer. Because if you walk more than that, it's considered work. And you can't work on the Sabbath. So you see what they're doing? They're creating commandments to keep you back, keep you back, keep you back, so there's no possible way you could ever transgress the, really, the one that really matters. Now this is the problem 
that springs up in Mark 7. And the particular uh, issue here is these hand-washing laws that the Pharisees had. Because they were so concerned to make sure people were in a state of ritual purity by the time they came to eat any meal, they would insist that before every single meal, everybody washed their hands. Now, this has nothing to do with hygiene. All right? I, know it's, I know your mum told you always wash your hands before dinner, right? And you think that's what's going on. This has nothing to do with that. They don't really give a rip about hygiene. This is all about ceremonial purity. This is all about ritual purity, so that you are in a state of ritual cleanliness by the time you go and eat any type of food. And it wasn't enough that you just washed your hands. You had to wash them a certain way. And this is where the Pharisees would argue with one another, and leading Pharisaic rabbis would have discussions uh, about exactly what type of hand washing would be appropriate before a person has a meal. This is the level to which it went to. So in one Jewish source, um, we have rabbis saying that if a person pours cold water over just one of his hands, then he is ceremonially clean. But in, another, in, another, in the Talmud, uh, we read, I wash my hands with both hands full of water. So there's a little dispute going on here, very important to figure out whether it's okay just to wash the one hand and then you're clean, or whether the both hands have to go under. And it went further than this. People were talking about how you flexed your fingers a certain way to allow the water to go through so that the back of the hand was also... I mean, this is seriously how they work. You can start to see why this is a problem for Jesus. You know, I mean, th this whole body of laws that's growing up, this is what we call oral tradition. None of it was written down at the time, all, all written down later through the Talmud and the Mishnah and these things, but at the time it was just oral tradition. And it really started becoming much more important to these Pharisees than the, than the actual law that they'd received from Moses. What they, were command to, what they were concerned to protect was these little traditions and these customs and regulations that they themselves had come up with to try and put a safety fence around the Torah. Now, before we look at Jesus' response to this, because that's why he gets in trouble, because Jesus and his disciples... Some of them aren't washing their hands. Oh, bad boys, you know? This is, and it's not about hygiene. This is, the problem is, from the Pharisees' perspective, they have become defiled because they're not following the customs of the elders. Now, Jesus gives them one more example of their own practice in verse 9. This is a fascinating little insight into how the Pharisees worked. This practice of Corban, or if you, if you uh, want to get the Hebrew sound going, Choban, yeah? try and get that guttural Choban going there, if you want to sound authentic. But really, again, this started off as a good thing. A korban was just an offering to God. You could bring an offering of a, an animal or a grain offering or something like that. But the way it had developed in the first century is that you could take a vow of korban over any piece of property or any asset that you owned. You could declare it to be korban. And really what that would mean is when you declared that, it would be like tagged for a spiritual purpose. It would be officially God's property, officially the property of the temple. But the Pharisees decided that doesn't actually mean you have to stop using it. It doesn't actually mean you can't profit from it. It doesn't mean that you actually have to physically give it to the temple or the priests or anything. It just means it's kind of tagged. It's just reserved. It's just kind of sanctified in a way. The only thing it does mean is that you can't sell this thing and then give the proceeds away to someone else. And so you can see how it became misused. You've got a situation where someone's elderly parents come along and say, hey, son, hey, daughter, we're getting really old and decrepit, and we need you to help us. And I notice you've got that nice little piece of land that you could possibly think about selling up, maybe, and giving us the proceeds because we can't really look after ourselves, and isn't it the, the responsibility of the children to look after the parents? 
And these, these children would be able to say to their parents, well, mum and dad, you know, I'd really love to do that, but unfortunately I've designated this property Corban. Um, so that means I can't technically sell it and give you the money because it belongs to God. Sorry about that. Yes, I can still use it. Yes, I can still profit from it. Yes, I could have other people staying in it if I wanted to, but I'm sorry, I can't actually sell it and give it to you. Bye-bye. And that's basically how it worked. So you see, Jesus is just tearing his hair out over this. The way that this oral tradition is just taken over, and he takes them back to the command of Moses to honor your father and mother, and he says, what about that one? What about that law? Have you thought about that recently? Honor your father and mother. And do you see the way that by this whole Corban practice and these customs that you've come up with, you're actually nullifying the commands that Moses gave you? It's not even just that your commands are more important than those ones. By obeying your human traditions, you're actually negating the law that God handed down to you. And you're disobeying the law of Moses to honor your father and mother. And Jesus says the bottom line is you've become like these people that Isaiah described who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it's interesting how some of these specific practices of the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they're quite foreign to us. They take a lot of unpacking. But this concept of a people who honors God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him, we know exactly what that means, don't we? We know exactly what that's talking about because that's where a lot of us live a lot of the time. Honoring God with our lips and, and, and the outside and the external, and yet our hearts are far from Him. And maybe all that outward projection is disguising a heart that's gone quite cold for you. And there's that sense of real spiritual emptiness and dryness. And there's a great big chasm between you and God. You're not quite sure how it got that way. You're not quite sure what you can do to fix it. And it's taking a lot of time and it's wearing you down, just keeping up the super self on the outside, the great Christian you. And on the inside, your spirit is slowly being eroded. Your heart is slowly being worn down and it's slowly getting dark and it's slowly getting cold. And Jesus had a word for people in this category. And it sounds, it's going to sound a bit harsh to us, but he called these people hypocrites. And we have all the baggage that we associate with that word. But in fact, as far as we know, Jesus was the first person to use that word that way. Because it came out of the world of Greek and Roman theatre. It was used of a person who puts on a mask on stage to play a stage persona. That's how it was used. That's who hypocrites were. They were actors playing the role on stage. But Jesus geniusly takes this word from the world of theater and he takes it into the world of, of, of our life and our interior selves and he says this is what it is to wear a mask to have a projected image but that doesn't reflect who you really are on the inside and how it's really going on the inside and when there's that breakdown between the outward you and the you that everyone else sees and what is really going on in your heart then you become like these hypocrites you're wearing a mask and some of us are doing that this morning, to greater or lesser degrees, we do it all the time. There's a mask up. There's a social role. There's a persona that we're playing. We're in the game. We're playing church. We're being Christians. And yet, what's going on on the inside? So easily, we can drift into the category of the hypocrite. And we find ourselves in the shoes of the scribes and the Pharisees. All we're doing is washing our hands. Washing our hands, washing our hands, washing our hands. And never dealing with what's really going on in our heart. So that's good news, isn't it? How do we get out of this situation? 
I mean, it's, you know, that's the bad news. How do we get ourselves out of this? It, it's been an interesting journey for me the last couple of weeks because for the first time ever, I've, I've had five pages of notes that I threw out of this message. I've got enough discarded notes to preach a whole other sermon. So you might get that next week from the discard pile. That's going to be a real bad one. But, um, you know, it, I, I've never thrown that much stuff out before because here's the journey that I've been on. When I started looking at what Jesus says and what Jesus proposes as the solution to all of this, I started going down a certain road, and it was this. In order to not be hypocrites, in order to not be like the Pharisees and the scribes, what we need to do is work on our hearts. You know, this was my instinctive response, and this was how I first read Jesus' words, what he, what he says. That what, what, I thought, what I heard him saying is you, you've got to have a better heart. You've got to work on the inside. If there's a disconnect between the outside and the inside, then for heaven's sake, work on the inside. Have a pure heart. Or as evangelicals, we like to use the words heart devotion. To God, you've got to have better heart devotion. How's your heart devotion? Or we say, how's your soul? You know, we've got to work on that soul so, so that uh, if, if this is your exterior self and this is your heart down here, then the heart's got to come up so that the, the inside is good as well. But, you know, as I went along that road and started trying to break that down and think, what does that mean? What it ends up meaning is think better thoughts, have better feelings, control your desires, check your motives, control your willpower, and generally it just starts sounding as legalistic as the scribes and Pharisees were. And all that we end up doing is replacing an external set of rules with an internal set of rules. So rather than telling each other to behave ourselves on the outside, that that's not the issue, all we end up saying to each other half the time as Christians is, no, 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 you've got to do stuff on the inside. It's the heart that matters, so think better, feel better, uh, have better motives, have greater heart devotion to God, pray more in your mind, you know, work on your heart, have a better heart, have a better heart, have a better heart. And we think that's what Jesus was telling us, that we've got to focus on the inside, not the outside. And if you've tried this, you know that it just doesn't work. And you end up just as frustrated and just as depressed. In fact, I would argue that it's harder to control your mind than it is to control your behavior. Because your mind's so fluid. Thoughts come in, thoughts come out. Where on earth did that thing come from? You don't know how to control. You don't know how to get rid of these thoughts in your mind and, and our motives that are mixed and stained and it's all very unseen and unknowable. And how do we get a hold on our interior world? I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying is you can't. You can't. I think that's pretty much the point of this passage. You can't. Because it's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's not anything that you do and it's not anything that you think. The source of our impurity and the source of our defilement before God is so deeply rooted inside the human heart that there is absolutely not a single thing that we can do or think or feel to try and get ourselves out of that predicament. And the only reason that we think if we just have a better heart and do a bit better and think a bit better is because we haven't yet felt the gravity of our own sin. And when you really get your head around what sin is and how depraved we truly are and that incredible stain that runs so deeply through the heart of every human being, then you start to realize there is no way I can just try and have a better heart or be a better person. And you realize how laughable it is that the Pharisees are trying to wash their hands, thinking that that's going to deal with the source of their defilement. Jesus says, you're kidding yourselves. You're dead in the water. That's not getting anywhere near the root of the problem because it's so deep. It's so deeply internal. There is nothing you and I can do. We are depraved creatures with darkened hearts. And the scriptures say the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can possibly know it? 
That's the category that we're in. And what we need, friends, is not better hearts. We need new hearts. That's the reality. And that's the good news that Jesus came to bring. I think when Jesus talked about the heart and he talked to people about these issues, it's likely that he had in mind one of the great promises in the Old Testament that talks about what God was going to do with his people's hearts and this new heart that he was going to bring them. And the promise is in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel 36. Let me just read you a couple of these verses and just in a, in a very personal way, try and hear these words spoken to you this morning. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's nothing in there about God giving us a better heart. There's nothing in there about God just giving us an upgrade, giving us a bit more power so that we can be a bit better and look like good religious Christians. That's not the issue at all. What God promises is nothing less than a complete and utter heart transplant, that he will take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Friends, this is exactly what Christ accomplished for us in his death and his resurrection. This is what the cross is. This is what the empty tomb is all about, that Jesus did what the law could never do, what all these washings and ceremonies and rituals and purity laws could never, ever do. He reached deep within us and he took out that heart of stone from inside of you and took that away and placed there in its place, figuratively speaking, of course, a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart given to you by God himself. That is the dramatic surgery that people undergo when they come to Christ not this, I'm going to give you a bit more power so you can be a bit better and make the grade. It's radical transformation. It's an entire heart transplant. The heart of stone is gone. The heart of flesh has come. And it's interesting that as Ezekiel describes that process, one of the images he uses is of this sprinkling, this washing. It's fascinating because this controversy Jesus is in is about washing and about washing of the hands. The Pharisees are trying to wash their hands, wash their hands, trying to make themselves pure. And yet the promise of Ezekiel is that God is going to sprinkle clean water on us in a way that deals with far more than just your external hands. That sprinkling is going to wash us in such a deep way. There is going to be this deep internal cleansing of our heart, of our mind, that is going to take away that stain of sin once and for all, past, present, future, gone, forgiven. That's what it means to be clean before God, friends. We could just camp out on this point forever, couldn't we? You know, it's just, you just need to hear this at a deep level this morning. This is what it is to be pure before God. Not to achieve a certain scorecard, not to be better, either internally or externally. It is about the heart of stone being taken out, the heart of flesh being renewed in us and being washed clean because of what Jesus has done for us. That's it. That's the promise. That's purity. That's cleanliness for the follower of Jesus. And people, of course, always say at this point, what about holiness, though? What about sanctification? You know, people love throwing that one around. What about, you know, we've got to be righteous, though. This is just a, you're just going to abuse grace. Otherwise, you're saying we do nothing. We just sit back and we're just made clean. And I think my first response to that is, well, if people do truly abuse grace, they haven't understood it. 
you know, if, if you really, if grace for you is a license to just keep on living how you were living, then, then, then that's not grace. I mean, you, you've, you've gone back on what the very definition of this clean heart and this pure mind actually is. Because in Ezekiel, again, the giving of this new heart is so tied to the giving of the Spirit. God places His new heart within us, and He does so by placing His Spirit within our lives, that the Holy Spirit is given to us, takes up residence in our lives. And that wonderful phrase from Ezekiel, that as God gives us His Spirit, He says, I will then move you to obey my commands and be careful to keep my laws. That's the process of sanctification or obedience. The Spirit within us, over time, moves us to obey and moves us to be transformed. But it comes from that new heart that God's given us. That's where it starts with that renewed relationship, the complete annihilation of our, of our sin and our rebellion, past, present, future, not just a clean slate, but an entirely new slate that we get utterly forgiven. We receive the Spirit of God, and over time then our mind is renewed in the image of our Creator. Our heart is renewed in the image of our Creator. And this does bubble over into relationships, into the way that we think, into the way that we relate to God, into our church life and involvement, into the way that we redeem our vocation for God. It has that effect. But the problem is, most of the time, we start at the other end. We start with behaviors, and we start with moralism, and we just want to do right and be right and make sure you've got the big sins ticked off. And friends, if you try and achieve purity that way, you're just dead in the water. If you try and do it that way, apart from the new heart that God has given you and the new spirit that he's placed within you, you are whistling in the wind. That is just not how it's going to happen. It comes out of a new heart. It comes by the spirit of God. And it happens gradually over time through the renewing of our mind, leading to a life of fruitfulness and obedience to Christ. And a life that's transformed that way from the inside out is going to be a far more fruit than the, than the moral strivings of someone just functioning out of guilt and obligation. Do better, be better, try harder, think better, feel better. That's just a recipe for frustration, depression, and a life in bondage to guilt. That's all that happens down that road, and you find yourself back in the category of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's a scene in Shakespeare's Macbeth when uh, Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking through the corridors of the royal castle at night, and she has on her conscience this conspiracy, this murder that her and her husband have conspired uh, against the king. And she went through that whole process thinking that it wouldn't weigh on her conscience, that it wouldn't really cause her any grief that she'd be able to just do this heinous act and then move on with life. But she finds in the middle of the night, as she's sleepwalking, that it's tormenting her. And she, she utters that famous line, out damned spot, trying, referring to the, the, the blood stains that she has on her hands because of this conspiracy that she's been involved in. And try as hard as she wants, she can't get rid of the blood that's on her hands because it's sunken into a deep level in her conscience. And it's a picture of people who try to deal with sin and try to uh, achieve purity and please God simply in external and superficial and outward ways. I think there's a lot of Christians playing that game. There's a lot of Christians in the shoes of the scribes and the Pharisees just washing their hands. And maybe that's you this morning. Through whatever means, I don't know what, what it means for you. Maybe just spending all your effort trying to keep up this exterior, make sure everybody knows. And over time, it takes a lot of energy, and that, that alone wears you down, just trying to keep up the mask, keep playing the game, keep making sure everybody thinks you're okay. 
Maybe for you it's just some kind of ritual that you've got yourself into and, and your, your expression of faith has become routine and it's become mundane and it's become a cover-up for a pretty darkened heart. Or maybe it's that you're genuinely trying to please God by doing things, being good, living right, trying to forgive, trying to be loving, trying to be patient, trying to be a peacemaker, and you're finding it's getting you nowhere, and you're just frustrated, and you feel like God's not pleased with you, and you're nothing but a disappointment to Him. And friends, it begins today simply by coming back to that new heart that God has given us, and hearing afresh the promise of Ezekiel. And really claiming it for ourselves, that God has given us that new heart. He sprinkled us with clean water and made us completely clean. You are clean. You are pure. You are forgiven. If you're a child of God, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you are completely and utterly washed pure by the blood of Christ. That's a reality that needs to sink in. And out of that comes a life of obedience. Let that emerge from a clean heart. Let it emerge from a pure mind. Let it emerge from what Christ has done for you. That's what it means to be pure before God.